So, not to scare you, but Christmas is two months away. I have not bought one single present or even thought that way. I don't have any money. I have to wait till I have some money. But at Christmas time, in December, I have two of my favorite movies. I am like a black and white movie fan. I just love black and white movies. They just don't think of my dad anymore. Ever since they added color, something's gone downhill. <laughs> but two of my favorite movies, which my family refuses to watch with me anymore, is It's a Wonderful Life and The Bishop's Wife, the old one, the one with Cary Grant and Loretta Young. And the reason I love that is I think Brian looks like Cary Grant, just <laughs> And um, I, I, I just love that movie. But the movie that I always tugs at my heart even more is It's a Wonderful Life. You know it, and if you don't know it, you need to watch it. But it's the story of George Bailey, played by Jimmy Stewart. And George desperately wants to make a name for himself. He has a dream to go to college and leave Bedford Falls and do something great and grand to put his name on the books. But his plans are upended by the death of his father, by World War II and his brother's enlistment in the Air Force, by the need to take over his father's business, by family responsibilities, by love and marriage and children. And one day, all of George's sacrifices seemed for naught when evil curmudgeon Mr. Potter <laughs> finds the deposit, the financial deposit, that George Bailey forgot to make in his excitement over Christmas. When George realizes that the money is lost, he feels like everything he sacrificed for is for naught. And the ground seems to be crumbling beneath him. He can see no value and no worth to his life. What has it all been for? Until an angel named Clarence <laughs> finds George and saves him from suicide and reveals to George how important his life has been to Bedford Falls, to his family, to his friends, and ultimately to the whole world. The movie reminds us that inwardly, we all have a need to have a name. We all want a name. I'm not talking about what you're called by, because some of us don't even like our names. My daughters don't like their names. They don't think I have that good of taste. <laughs> you know, in some ways I wish I had named them like Prunella and Penelope or something that they could really hate. I like their names. But my criteria when I named my girls and my boys was rhythm and sound. How does it sound? It, you know, only secondary was the meaning of the names. Kristen means Christ-like, and her middle name is Anne, which means grace. So that's good. My son is Brian Charles, which means um, manly virtue, which is good. 
My daughter, Kelsey Catherine, means purely from the ship island. <laughs> and Braden means from the wide valley. But he is Braden Christian Michael. So he's who is like, what Christian is like God coming from the White Valley? <laughs> we wanted to name our boys Blaine. We thought Blaine Broderson sounded so cool. But then we found out the name Blaine means pining or sickly. <laughs> so we couldn't do it. Now when the Bible talks about a name, it's talking about something totally different. It is talking about a person's identity, about a person's personality, how you are known, what you are like inside. You're not the outward, what people see, but the true person of the heart. It's about what you think about, your priorities, and how you think about what you think about. Just think on that one. It's about your worth, your value, how you find your value. In fact, what people pursue about their value, what people pursue often tell you about their value system. If they pursue higher education, it means they value education. That education to them has worth. If they value money, it means that money has worth. If they value um, high positions, it means that high positions have worth. My mom once had a friend say to her that her mother told her, cultivate friendships with people in influential places. <laughs> and my mom said, when this woman started cultivating a friendship with her, she got so scared. <laughs> but it also, thirdly, tells you about your purpose. It tells you about what you contribute or what you bring to life, life of others into the world. The mark you make through living. People search for a name in a variety of ways today. Have you noticed that? Personality tests. I mean, those are so fun. And you know, we, we find ourselves taking them and like, is this me or is this not me? Diagnostic tests. DNA ancestry tests. Placement tests. None of these are bad but they don't give us our true identity. My daughter, my mother was adopted. We don't know what you know nationalities. I know what half of me is, but I don't know what the other half of me is. I know what I got from my dad's side, but I don't know what I got from my mom's side because she was adopted and everything was eradicated. So we swapped her twice. <laughs> I've been swapped five times. And I have to say, every DNA test has come back different. I mean, one day I'm Iraqi and the next day I'm Irish. I don't know who I am. And then I'm Ashkenazi Jew. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm all of the above. Who knows? But you know, none of them can truly tell me who I am. Some people try to search for their identity by er by experimentation, doing whatever they feel. I feel, you know, if that's true, then you could be a taco. <laughs> Following my emotions wherever they lead me. Some people try to find themselves through self-indulgence. Others by self-denial, asceticism. Some try to find themselves by education. Others by traveling the world. Some by their peer groups. Others by careers. 
and others still by accomplishment. I'm always interested in how people introduce themselves to me. Hi, I'm so-and-so's daughter, that's your daddy. Hi, I'm a flag bearer, that's your value. Hi, I'm so-and-so's friend, that's your value. How do you introduce yourself? But what is the best way to find your name? Today I want to talk to you about the best way to find who you really are. Who you really are. I want to talk to you first. Last week I gave you the bad news and then the good news. This week I'm going to give you the good news and then I'm going to give you the bad news. The best way for you to find your name is to find the one who made you and ask him, who am I? Who did you create me to be? I have a thought sewing machine. It doesn't work like any other sewing machine. And when I don't understand it, I have to go to the Thoth manual and find out what those Swedes were thinking when they made that sewing machine. It will tell me what I'm doing wrong and the right way to use it. Do you know my sewing machine has capabilities that I have yet to use or utilize? It's amazing, but it's all in the manual. I go to the booklet that the manufacturer wrote and there I find the best use for my machine, the purposes for my machine, and the great things my thought sewing machine is capable of. In our study this week from Genesis 8 through 11, we see the desperate need of every man to find his name. Now you might be asking yourself, what do radiant rainbows, naked Noah, haughty man, notorious Nimrod, brazen Babel builders have in common? <laughs> you might not have put it that way. But that's what you're wondering. Proverbs 22, 1 tells us that a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Ecclesiastes 7, 1 says a good name is better than precious ointment. It's interesting to note that the word good in Hebrew is the word shem. Yeah. And you know what? Noah, whose name means rest, had a son. Shem. His name is good. He also had a son named Ham, which means pot, and a son named Jacob that meant wide spreading. Interesting, isn't it? The identity of a man who he is is tied to a relationship or a covenant with his maker, the one who made him. Because God knows you down to every chromosome in your DNA, every cell in your body. God knows who you are, how you think, what you think, and why you think what you think. Identity has to do with being the special creation of God. In Genesis 9-1, we learn that God's blessing on us gives us a name. We 
who are in a relationship with God have the identity as the blessed of God. I can truly say, I am the one blessed by God. I am the one saved from destruction by God. Who am I? I'm the one saved from destruction. Who am I? I'm the one in a relationship with God. Who am I? I am the one with the promises of God. Who am I? According to Genesis 9, 2 through 4, I'm the one with the provision of God. Because God has given me every green herb of the field. God has provided for his own all the food they need, all the covering they need. And from Genesis 9, 2, who am I? I am the one protected by God. And I'm protected from the animal kingdom, nature itself. But I'm also protected from God's wrath against sin. And I am protected from men, from men who do not value my life. You know, I'm, I love true crime stories. I don't really like crime at all. Even if it is true, I don't like it. But I love, I love forensic files because they always catch the guy. I don't like the programs like Unsolved Mysteries you know, or Unsolved Cases. It's like, no, when you solve it, you let me know. And until you solve it, I'm not watching. As soon as you solve it, you know, and he's in jail, I'll watch. Or he's you know, been electrocuted, I'll watch. But until then, if he's roaming the streets, I'd rather not know. I'm just going to lock my doors. But I'm always interested in true crime because what you find is that somebody, to have a momentary pleasure, to try to fulfill themselves, took the life of a father with children, took the life of a mother with children, took the life of a young girl, took the life of a young man. Didn't think about that potential. I was watching True Crime the other day, and it was about a college girl, and she was just um, the joy of a mother and father, brought joy every place she went. And as she was going on the campus to her car, um, a man approached her, kidnapped her, raped her, killed her for his pleasure. Took her life, snuffed it out, because it had no value. But what you see in Genesis 9, 5 through 6, is God has placed a value on our lives. And God says that anyone who kills jeopardizes his own life. He is to pay with his own life. Why? Because our lives matter to God. In Psalm 49, it says that the soul of man is of infinite worth. And what will you give for? God places a bounty on life. We are a special creation. We have worth because we have been made, created in the image of God. He imparted his own image his own ability to think and to reason, his own attributes into mankind, into male and female, both bear the image of God. We read about the hands of God. 
We read about the arms of God. We read about the feet of God. We read about God speaking, God seeing through his eyes, God hearing. And he gave these same attributes to us as his special creation. And because we bear the image of the highest order, the highest person in creation, we have value. Our worth is greater than apes and creeping things or even angels. As David said, what is man that you are mindful of him? Why, why do you spend so much time? Why do you care about redeeming man? We're, we're rebellious, we're sinful. Why do you love us so much? And God says, because I do. Because I invested myself in you. Isn't it true? We love the things we invest the most time in. That's where, that's where our heart is. That, you know, if you paint a picture and you put your whole heart into it, you care what people say about that picture. You're like, do you like it? Don't tell me if you don't. If you write a book and somebody puts it down, you're just like, oh, my baby. If you have a baby and somebody says, oh, you're like, die. You know, it's, it's what you invest in. It's what you invest in. God is invested in us. Our dignity and our value is because we bear the image of the immortal God. And we have purpose. And we were created with purpose. And our purpose is to obey God. And his commandments are good. Look at these commandments that he gives. Be fruitful. Create. Isn't that wonderful? Be fruitful. I like that one. Multiply. Increase. Fill the earth. Enjoy. Travel. Go. Placement where God sends you. <coughs> you see, relationship with God brings security and assurance. And he says, I'm going to show you a sign, a covenant. This this is the picture that I have a relationship with you. It's this rainbow. Every time you see the variegated sky, uh, variegated colors in the sky, this overarching covering bow, I want you to remember that I'm not at war with you. I'm for you. I want to protect you. I want to bless you. I want to beautify your life. And the storm is not to destroy you, but to cleanse you and to purify you. This is the way to a need and identity. It's through a relationship with God and under the covenant of God. That's where we find our true need, our identity, our value, our purpose fruitfulness, our increase, our placement. Now, there is a wrong way to seek a name. And we find this wrong way in Genesis 9, 18-29. And it's through Ham. You know the story. The story is that Ham goes into the tent of his father. Now, 
In those days, tents were sacrosanct. You weren't supposed to just go into a tent without calling out and seeking permission. Ham breaches a border. He, he breaks a rule, and he goes into his father's tent. And Noah's had a little too much of the new juice of the grapes. He's enjoyed just a little too much. But at least he's in his tent. He's not public. He's there, he's hidden, and nobody would have known it had Ham not gone in and come out and told everyone what he saw. You see, there are some who seek to make a name for themselves at the expense of others. Maybe you've known that. Maybe you've had someone like that who did that to you, who put you down so they could elevate themselves. There are those who think, if I can denigrate another, if I can expose their weakness, humble them, make them an object of ridicule, then I can be seen as superior or better. I can make a name for myself. And I think how many people have built their names on the destruction of others. Don't believe me? Watch a presidential debate. <laughs> there are those that can who want to uglify beauty, pollute purity, find fault with faith, exploit weakness, demean reputations, and try to remove the image of God from men and rob his saints of their worth by exploiting, by exploiting their weaknesses and their failures. I think of so many people who have done this, but in the end, this way of name building leads to a curse. Not a good name, not a good identity, not more work, not a contribution to an enhancing life, but it creates a bad reputation. It is self-devaluating and it is destructive rather than constructive. Jesus warned of this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 1. Judge not, lest you be judged. Do not condemn, lest you be condemned. For with the measure you use, that is the measure you will be judged by. You want to exploit, you will be exploited. You want to build a name by putting others down. Others will build their name by putting you down. Ham dishonored this patriarch. It was not a quick glance. It was a long observation. What happened in the tent is unclear, but it didn't stay in the tent. Ham told his brothers outside. Ham dishonored this great patriarch, this great patriarch of faith. This patriarch who had heard God, walked with God, obeyed God, built an ark, and saved Ham and his wife from destruction. But Ham was willing to degrade his father, dishonor his father, to make a name for himself. Ham's dishonoring behavior ended in a curse upon Ham and upon his son Canaan and their descendant. 
this bad behavior would replicate itself again and again and again. Those who humiliate and those who use humiliation will be humiliated. Cursed is Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. On the other hand, you have Shem and Japheth, the other sons of Noah, and they discreetly covered their father's nakedness. They did not want to see their father dishonored. They knew that this behavior was due to the one and not to the person. They refused to take advantage of his weakness or to exploit it. In the end, Shem and Japheth were blessed. They received a name by covering the multitude of sin, by showing grace, by showing honor. They received a name. In Genesis chapter 10, we see the table of nations that proceeded from the sons of Noah, mainly the sons of Ham. We see that they went, they built cities. There are 70 cities listed. This is not an exhaustive list, but it, because it doesn't include little cities, but it is just to show you the completeness of, of going out. Now, also, Genesis chapter 10 is an overview. Genesis chapter 11 is going to fill in some details, some questions maybe that you have about the lineage of Shem or about what the chapter reported. Chronologically, this chapter belongs after Genesis 11, but it's presented because of its genealogies. It, it wants to deal with Shem's genealogy. I'm sorry, it wants to deal with Ham's genealogy, Japheth's genealogy, so it can get to the genealogy, genealogy <laughs> of Shem. It's like, it's like eating your vegetables so you can get to your steak. You know, I, I, okay, let me just tell you a story. When I was a little girl, all my life, I still do this. I eat the things that I don't like, the, you know? And the things that I really like, I push to the side because I'm saving them. When I was a little girl, we couldn't really afford steaks. When my mom bought a steak, it had to feed either one man and two growing sons, two daughters and herself. So she would take a steak and she would cut it in these thin strips. So you would get steak strips. Imagine my dismay when I was 16 and ordered my first steak and realized it comes in a slab. <laughs> Who knew? Who knew? But I loved a steak. So it was the last thing I would eat. And I would push it to the side. Like, oh, I'll get to this. The first piece. First salad. And then steak. Well, my dad, because I pushed it to the side, and he didn't think his strips were ample enough. He would start eating those pieces of steak, like, I'll help Sherry, you know, it's like too much food for her. And I would watch it slowly disappear, but I loved him so much that I didn't want to say, it's my steak. And I would just think with every bite he took, I love you, Daddy. I love you, Daddy. As I ate my peas, which I hated, I love you, Daddy. Enough to eat peas, Daddy, I love you. It's one of the reasons I was a skinny little kid. <laughs> 
when I grew up and, and got married, I was out to dinner. Brian was on one side of me, my dad was on the other side. I got a mistake, I pushed it to the side. I was eating my vegetables. And all of a sudden, two forks crossed. <laughs> and those two men looked at each other and said, Oh, sorry. Not to me. <laughs> Whose steak is it? They didn't say it to me. They said it to each other. Now that has something to do. Somehow, exactly. I don't know, you don't know, but somehow it has something to do. Oh, getting rid of the, the lesser to go to the greater. So it's going to deal with the lineage of Shan, uh, Ham and Jacob, so it can get to the stake, which is Shem. So it tells us, yeah, I had a point. See what happens when I go off my notes, I'm like, Whoa. It tells us in verse 25 that Peglik, the son of Shem, during his time, the earth was divided. And this is probably a reference to the events of Genesis chapter 11. Now, among the genealogy that we read in verses 8 through 14, we read of this man named Nimrod, whose name, interestingly enough, means rebel or strong rebel. And we read that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is not a flattering term, because God has just said life is valuable. An animal's life is valuable because it's, been, it's supposed to be for food but just the clean animals. And a person's life is valuable, and blood is valuable. But this is a man who is exploiting life. He's a hunter. It means he's a killer. And before God, he looks like a murderer. Now to man, he looks like a mighty warrior in a builder of cities. But to God, he's a murderer and an exploiter. There are those who seek to build a name by subjugating men. The more men under them, the greater their identity and value and purpose. By building great companies or cities for themselves. By naming these cities, having authority to give something a name. When Adam named the animals, it was stating his authority over them. So naming these cities, having authority over them, this is the wrong way to seek to have a name by having power over people on earth. In Luke chapter 22, verses 25 through, I mean, verses 25 through 26, is Jesus was having his last supper. Imagine this. Jesus is, he's just given the disciples the bread and broken it, so this is my body which is given for you. He's saying, with fervent desire, I want to have this last meal with you before I go to the cross. Then he passes out the cup, and he says, this cup is the new covenant, which is in my name. Drink this cup. And he's, he's talking about his death and what he's establishing with them. And he looks at them and says, what are you guys arguing about? And they're all embarrassed. This is a, this is a precious Wonderful time. And you know what they're arguing about? Who's got the best name? Who's got the greatest name? 
Who's going to have the best name? Who's the greatest among the disciples? Who's got the name? And Jesus says, the kings of the Gentiles, they exercise lordship over them and authority, but it shall not be so among you. For whoever wants to be the greatest shall be the least. And he said, I am among you as one who serves. I have taken the lowest place among you. This is the way. Let God give you a name. Finally, in chapter 11, we have the wrong way. Another, the third wrong way to a name. At first glance, it's difficult to understand what was truly going on. This Tower of Babel was a corporate effort of men, but it was a corporate effort to do away with God. It was saying, we can be God. We can do whatever God does. If only we work together and make our own bricks. We're not going to use his stones. We're going to make our own bricks. We're going to do our own mortar. And we're going to build it so high. What they were creating was a ziggurat. A ziggurat was a, um, it was a monument. So they were going to build this monument to men. And this monument was in direct rebellion to God. It was saying, we don't need God. We can do whatever we want. We can create a utopia on earth. A place just as good as heaven. And we'll make it so tall and it will be so impressive that men will say, look how great men are. And God says that allowing them to do this, no purpose will be withheld from them. Whatever they set their mind to, no purpose. This was their thinking. We can do anything. We can do everything. We don't need God. We don't need to obey God. We don't need to fill the earth. We can huddle together. And men cooperatively can defeat God, can be as great as God if we're just all on the same page. It was rebellion. And God knew it was destructive. We will do it our own way with our own materials. It was a turn away from God. We don't need God. We can do what he does. We can achieve ourselves what he achieves. We don't want God to name us. We want to choose our own destiny. We want to make our own name. Someday, this same attitude is going to be among the kings of the earth. We read in Revelation that all the kings of earth will gather together in another plane, the plane of Megiddo. And they will gather against the Lord and against his anointed and believe that they can actually defeat the purposes, plans, and person of God. It's interesting to me, it seems that the higher you go, the more unstable 
the foundation and the building. Though it was an endeavor that could never succeed, it was a threat in another way. Because it was rebellious, we will not fill the earth. It was destructive. We will do it our own way, by our own materials. It was a turn from God. Interestingly enough, God must come down. Dr. Lennox talked about this at the unbelievable. He said, I find it interesting. And I was like, he's talking about the Tower of Babel. Yes. Let me teach on that. He says, but God must come down to see this thing. He said it with an Irish will. That's so cute. God must come down. In other words, God had to humble himself and condescend to even look at this building that men were erecting. They could not build it high enough to reach him. They could never achieve what God achieved. Men with all his wisdom, with all his technology, with all of his equipment cannot replicate his cell. The closest that the laboratory has come to a human eye is the camera. And it might be great, and it might be um, ingenious, but it's not as ingenious as the two eyes that you have. He says, nothing that they propose, verse 6, will be withheld from them. They will become self-reliant, totally independent, and therefore self-destructive and self-annihilating. So God presses the pause button. And he does this by giving them all different languages. What a merciful way to work with these people. Isn't that a mercy? He doesn't go, lightning bolt. <laughs> you know, and people are falling in rows, you know. He says, let's just give them all different languages. It's, I think, a comical way, and yet so clever, to get people to actually obey. Has God ever used kind of a comical, clever way to get you to obey? I know he has with me. I, uh, the other day, I was trying to go one place, and I kept hitting red lights, and nobody would let me get in the left lane. And so I ended up having to keep making right turns and go someplace I didn't want to go, and it was so God. You ever have that? And you're like, Lord, I know this is you, and you know I want to go there, but you're making me go here. I love the merciful way of God. How he's working mercifully with them. He gives them all different languages so that they are forced to congregate with those who understand what they're saying. They're forced into these different people groups. You see, God has a way to move even the most rebellious into compliance with his commands and his way. In the 60s, there was this huge move away from God. In the 50s, prayer was taken out of school, uh, the Ten Commandments, the Bible removed from the public schools, all over. And what happened in the 60s, for those of us who were there, we can tell you, you know, you might have those hippie parties where everyone dresses up like a hippie. The hippie days were scary. They were so scary. People were on drugs. They had no self-control. You were scared. There were um, the Black Panthers. There was the Sibianese Liberation Army. You didn't know who was going to get kidnapped or what threat was out there. There was so much violence. And it was like God pressed 
the push button, the stop button, the pause, and said, you know what? I'm going to reveal myself to a bunch of hippies. To the lowest, to the dregs of society. And I'm going to raise them up as leaders in my church and deliver them with a great deliverance and give them a testimony and give them a name. And so these nondescript people who had almost ruined themselves with drugs were given a name, given a church, given a reputation by God, the pastor. Interestingly enough, Babel means gateway to the gods. But because of rebellion to God, it came to mean confusion. Now I want to tell you something very interesting that I told in leadership and maybe they told you. But Forensic Files, season 10, episode 15, Dr. Tony Fridakis, who is a molecular biologist, and one of the founders of DNA testing, ancestry testing, said the way they were able to create this science is by recognizing that all humans come from a common gene pool arising out of the area of the fertile crescent. Fertile Crescent is the area of Babylon. That they realize the way to find out what you are is to trace that gene pool that came out of the Fertile Crescent. Is that crazy? You should know. That is so good, one episode. Well, I'll tell you. Season 10, episode 15, YouTube. Dr. Tony Duckus may a sneak lip forever. <laughs> I have another friend who's a professor of philology, or was, he's retired at Northridge University. Philologist is the study of language. And he said to Brian one day, we as philologists, you know, they have to know languages just to say what they are, know that all languages originate from the Fertile Crescent. The God be true? The God be true? You know, scientists are just finding out, like, years later, what God already told us. Yeah. Languages originate from the Fertile Crescent. Every bloodline can be traced back to the Fertile Crescent. Trying to make a name for ourselves through ambition, kingdom building, self-effort, ridicule of others will only end in confusion. In James 3, 13 through 18, it says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, Confusion and every evil thing will be there. But the wisdom that is from above, when God means you, it is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. 
A name is not found by starting from earth and trying to advance up to heaven, but allowing heaven to come down and tell you who you are, your value, and your purpose. It's by letting heaven come down into your heart. He who created us with the desire to know who we are and what our value is and our meaning and what we are made to do did so that we might seek him. Acts 16, verses 26 through 27. And he is made from one lot, every nation of men, to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, for we are his offspring. In him we have our name. In him we have our purpose. The desire to have a name is God's instrument to cause us to seek him. But your name is found in covenant in relationship with God. Not in personality tests, not in DNA ancestry tests, not in diagnostic searches. They can tell you aspects about yourself, but they're not entirely accurate. You could have had too many tacos the night before. <laughs> but God thoroughly knows you and knows how to give you a name. Your true name, your true identity. The blessing God has for you, the covenant with you. Your worth is an image bearer of God dwelling among other image bearers is found as you obey his word, as you walk with him, and you're fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This way to seeking a name will bring glorification, sanctification, appreciation of others, rather than humiliation, oppression, and confusion. God has a name waiting for you to discover. And life in covenant with God is both a self-discovery and a God discovery. You know, the one with the greatest name of all, according to Philippians 2, 9 through 11, the one that God has given a name above every other name that is named in heaven or on earth, a name that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, he who has the greatest name of all said in a garden, not my will, but your will be done. Ham and Nimrod and the men of Babel said, not God's will, but our will be done. And they sought for a name that is almost forgotten. But the one who said, God, you name me. Not my will, but your will be done. His name is above everything that will ever be made in this life and the life to come. God has a name for each one of you, you image bearers. God has a name for you, and it's a good name. And it's better. It's better than riches. It's better than ointment. It's better than anything that the world can give you. 
It's a better name. A better name. God wants to give you a name. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. Lord, that when I'm looking out right now, I saw image bearers. I saw those that you have invested your time, your heart, your creativity, your love in. Lord, these are your women, and you love each one separately, individually. And you love each one corporately as we gather in your name. Lord, we thank you that when we seek your name, we find our own name. We find how we can bless the others and how we can be part of the great body of Christ. How we can be part of the glorifying of the greatest name of all. God, show us. Show us the way to finding our name in you. We pray this in Jesus' name.